0: Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're thrilled to have you along. We've got 90 minutes that we're going to ask you to give us, and we'll give you the world and some of the current events. Not all, we can't cover everything, but some of the world events that our broadcast partners will give us details behind, and we'll get information that'll help us understand the end time scenario that it's found. In God's Word. Now, let me just tell you some inside baseball. Before we went on the air, I was talking with Ken Timmerman. He's in Europe and he is uh, watching what's happening from that part of the world. What a great vantage point that is! But he's also just finished his book, ISIS Begins. And uh, he told me that he just sent me a PDF copy. (laughs) Ha, 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 I'm going to be able to read it before you do, but it's coming out. Ken, what is the launch date for your book?
1: Uh, the book will be out on the uh, 10th of July from Amazon.com. I'm going to send you a link so that you've got it. You can put it up on your website. This is a book about northern Iraq, about the Christians of northern Iraq, and the persecution of Christians by jihadi Muslim groups. This was what led up to the takeover of Mosul, the sweep of ISIS into the Nineveh Plain, when they were crucify, literally crucifying Christians in their ancestral homeland in northern Iraq. All this was totally predictable. All of us who were involved on the ground could see it coming. They were not a JV team. They were uh, very skilled, very efficient, and deadly.
0: Boy, it sounds exciting. I can't wait to get my copy and start reading it. We'll maybe talk about it again next week. Give everybody a heads up on how they can get a copy of it. ISIS Begins, the title of Ken Timmerman's latest book. Well, that's one of the reasons we have Ken among our other broadcast partners, like David Dolan standing by to give us a Middle East news update, John Rood reporting on the European Union, and we'll have Winky Madad talking about the importance of the Gaza Strip, but also the importance of the Golan Heights in the north of Israel. Both are key to the protection of the Jewish people. That's the reason we bring our broadcast partners to this table, to help us understand current events. So, Ken, let's get underway. Seems to me that the announcement that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in the middle of July in Helsinki, Finland, are going to get together is a key headline as it relates to world events, would you not say?
1: Yeah, and it's about time that it happened. The Europeans, by the way, are ecstatic that it's going to take place finally. They see the lack of direct communication between Putin and Trump as an aberration. Even during the Cold War, the U.S. president talked to the Soviet leader. And here, because of uh, this fake news Russia scandal in the United States, Trump has been really unable to talk to putin politically speaking you know for in the american political context they've got a lot of talk about and i'm sure we're gonna get into that a little bit in, in a couple of minutes but uh, uh, i believe the top on the agenda between them is going to be syria and iran and iran's role in syria and i think that president trump is going to ask putin to Work with the United States to isolate Iran and to enhance the uh, effect of the new U.S. sanctions that are going into effect. And I'm willing to bet you that Putin is going to say, no, no, we're, we can't do that. And he's going to find all kinds of excuses not to publicly say that he's going to help the United States. But I think Putin is going to do with the U.S. exactly what he's been doing with Netanyahu and with Israel, and that is to quietly, behind the scenes, help us in our effort to isolate the Islamic state of Iran.
0: Well, and at the same time, Vladimir Putin, really with his presence now in Syria, we could talk about Crimea, but I think in the Middle East is key. And Vladimir Putin has his eyes focused on a Middle Eastern role for Russia that's in the future. So I think that's going to be a part of that discussion at the summit as well
1: absolutely jimmy and and putin already has a an important role in the middle east he has really been the broker in syria between assad And some of the uh, other forces on the ground that have helped Assad to defeat ISIS, he got his nose bloodied. Let's not forget, and we've spoke about this uh, on this program uh, a couple of months ago when the United States killed something like 200 Russian mercenaries when they crossed the line and try to encroach on what the US considers to be its sphere of influence and that's the border region between Iraq and Syria but uh, no putin already has a role he wants to expand that role he wants to be a political and diplomatic role in addition to just the military role that he's playing currently in in syria he wants to be a power broker he wants to be the chief of state of a major international power not Sierra Leone
0: with nukes. (laughs) And that is true, and of course that's the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. Two major powers in the end times at the beginning of the tribulation period, Uh, one of them would be the European Union, which will be the revived Roman Empire, and the other one a coalition of nations who want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, I would have to say that is Russia and their coalition of Islamic states, which I now want to bring to the table. The victory by Tayyip Erdogan in his presidential election, that's turned him somewhat away from the European Union, the revived Roman Empire, and into the lap of uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia, would you not say?
1: Absolutely. This election was clearly not fair. Uh, it was completely stacked in Erdogan's favor. Just on the media alone, er- Erdogan had something like 120 hours of uh, TV time. His closest opposition rival got less than 20. So, you know, there was no fairness. Uh there's reports of ballot stuffing and bad counting and everything else, just to get Erdogan over that 50 percent line, so he didn't have to face a second round. So what we have now in uh, Turkey is a one-man state, no more nor less. Turkey has become an autocracy ruled by Erdogan. Uh, All semblance of democratic opposition, alternate power bases is gone. There's no more independent judiciary. Uh, Erdogan controls the schools, the courts, The police, the intelligence services, the military, the entire uh, country. This is something that really we haven't seen in an awful long time in turkey and the europeans are furious with erdogan There were election observers from the organization for security and cooperation in europe which is a multilateral organization that the u.s participates in but there's a heavy european union presence and they decried the election they said it was not fair there was a lot of corruption and ballot stuffing and they said that turkey has now irremediably uh, irremediably They compare themselves now with Russia as an autocracy rather than any kind of European country. The door is closed to Turkey to enter the European Union for as long as Erdogan stays in power.
0: And one giant step towards the desired end and goal for Tayyip Erdogan to revive the old Ottoman Empire, set a caliphate in place, and he be the leader of that.
1: Absolutely correct. I think that is what he's got in mind. He constantly criticizes Israel, calls for violence against Israel. He's using his consul general in Jerusalem to funnel aid to Gaza and to Hamas. The Israelis have you know, got to make a decision at some point how long they're going to tolerate that. They have temporarily expelled that consul general because of his illegal actions in helping Hamas, but you know there is something of a debate in Israel today over whether they should try to mend ties with Erdogan, realize uh, that they still have an economic relationship with Turkey. Turkey still recognizes Israel as a state, which is unusual obviously in the Muslim world, uh, whether that 's a relationship worth saving or not, so we 'll see in the future, but I tend to think that Israel is going to uh, you know follow its interests they're going to follow turkey 's actions uh, with Hamas they will protest turkey's actions they themselves will try to counteract turkey's actions in particular as i just said by by expelling the consul general from from jerusalem
0: ken in the middle east as we continue to get your report in tehran iran major protest and right in the face of the government why are the iranian people so angry
1: well now let's remember this is the sixth month of these protests they began in december and they're still going on and the regime has not been able to stop them uh, for a number of reasons number one is that they can't block the internet any longer and they cannot keep pictures and videos from coming out to the outside world getting on radio free europe uh... getting on you know various internet even the bbc the international media and they don't like to kill openly if they can kill in the darkness so now there's the light being shed on events inside Iran, and that that is really uh, disturbing the Iranian regime. And I'd say, thank goodness for that. The people are upset because the economy is in ruins. Just since President Trump announced the U.S. was withdrawing from the Iran deal, the currency, the Iranian currency, has lost again fifty percent. It's now something like ninety thousand rials to a dollar. Just. Five years ago, it was 30,000 reals to a dollar. Six months ago, it was 60,000. So their savings are evaporating in front of their eyes. The sanctions uh, that the U.S. is now organizing with its international partners are going to bite. We see oil prices rising. Why? Because uh, the oil markets have understood there's going to be about a million barrels of Iranian oil that will no longer be available because of sanctions and that means less revenue for the Iranian regime that means certainly fewer benefits for the Iranian people since the regime is spending most of the money to support its military adventurism in Yemen, Syria,
0: and elsewhere. That's the voice of Ken Timmerman. He's the man who covers geopolitical activities for us here on Prophecy Today. He does it so very well. If you've been listening for the last 12 minutes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Remember, he has a book ISIS Begins. That's coming out early part of July. We'll talk more about it next week. Ken, thank you so much for this excellent report. We will again talk with you next week.
1: Thanks so much, Jimmy. My pleasure. God bless.
0: We're going to take a break. When we come back, a Middle East News update. David Dolan standing by. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. As promised, David Dolan has come to this broadcast table. We'll be talking with him in just a moment. He has a Middle East News update for us. You know, it is key for you to understand what is happening in that region of the world because it is so important to know how God's plan is coming together, and the best focus on that is what's happening in the Middle East. So David Dolan, longtime journalist in that region of the world, comes to help us understand it by giving us details behind all the headlines. And David, let's get underway. I would imagine the number one headline has to be Israel making ready to uh, take care of their nuclear reactors in light of a missile strike from Hezbollah and Iran. Pretty serious stuff. What do you know about it?
3: Well, Jimmy, we are, it looks, on the verge of war. I've been talking about that for a few weeks, but it continues to grow, the evidence of that. And, of course, the Israelis are very concerned that even though Iran may not have nuclear weapons yet, we don't know that for sure, even though Hezbollah probably doesn't have. But again, there's some indications in the past that they might have some field nuclear weapons. But as you suggested, they can have a virtual nuclear weapon by hitting striking the Damona nuclear power plant and exploding it and releasing radiation all over the place, as happened when Chernobyl crashed in Russia some years ago in the Soviet Union. It was then. So the Israelis can't allow that. There's extra hardening going on. But this has been occurring for some years. They've been preparing for this eventual possibility of a strike there. But uh, we had missile strikes from Hamas uh, this week in the Gaza Strip. There's so much to talk about, Jimmy, as you know, uh, all the details of what's going on. But it, it continues to point to the fighting in the north, in the Dira province, the southernmost province of Syria. And Jimmy, that is where the uprising, the revolt against the Assad regime began in March of 2012. Assad has not controlled that region ever since. al Qaeda's in there. Other nefarious the Sunni Arab groups are in there that Israel doesn't want there. But they especially don't want Iranian and Hezbollah forces right there on the Golan border and yet they have been fighting with the Russians supporting them and Russia actually doing some of the shelling that's causing thousands of civilians to flee Dara province into mostly Jordan but we have some go into the Golan Heights showing how desperate they were they fled into the Jewish state this is Arabs of course most of them going into Jordan reports Jimmy that the Jordanians fear that there are undercover soldiers infiltrating into their country right now as refugees, pretending to be refugees, but they're actually mostly Lebanese, Hezbollah fighters that are disguised as uh, Syrian civilians that are coming in. Uh, It's a very serious situation, and again reports that the ultimate goal is to continue into Jordan and overthrow King Abdullah. Well, that would set off a full-scale regional war. The Saudis would react, and Jimmy, also this week they had six... Uh, houthi uh, missiles fired at them from yemen those are iranian missiles uh, were fired at riyadh the capital of saudi arabia the saudis would get involved right away israel would get involved right away russia would and the key element that people are looking at is the meeting between president trump and vladimir putin on the middle of july they don't expect there would be any action into Jordan before that, but possibly after that, if the president can't make it clear that this is a violation, but, Jimmy, already the Russians and their allies are violating that escalation agreement that uh, Trump made with Putin, that there would be no Iranian and Hezbollah forces right along Israel's border or Jordan's border. That's already being violated as we speak, and uh, the Israelis are certain of that and other Western and sources have confirmed that that is taking place, and Russia is clearly involved as well, and the Israelis are not very happy about that either.
0: Yeah, they're certainly not, but uh, that may well be the reason that President Trump has given the green light to Israel to go after Iranian forces. This may well be uh, to help uh, bring all of this to a, a major conflict in the Middle East if indeed Israel goes after the Iranian forces.
3: Well, it would be, Jimmy, but again, it's probably not going to be started by Israel. The Iranians have already crossed so many red lines, and the Israelis, again, the war is ongoing. Uh, We're not talking about a potential war. This is ongoing this week, for instance. Israeli jets struck a cargo plane that had just landed at Damascus airport full of weapons for Hezbollah they struck it right at the airport this is an ongoing war but if there's any action towards Jordan at all that would be the tripwire for a complete regional conflict turkey of course we have news there adnan uh, winning re-election and taking more and more dictatorial powers he supports syria and russia and iran in this Growing conflict. We have Egypt taking the west side mostly. Hamas, of course, under the uh, control more or less of Iran stepping up its action, and Israel stepping up counteractions this week. They seized money that had been sent to terrorist families in East Jerusalem, the relatives of of terrorists that killed the Jews, and the Israelis raided uh, those homes and and took back that money. All sorts of things going on, Jimmy, but yes, indeed, uh, a regional conflict. And again, the key, I believe, and many analysts believe, will be this summit between Putin and Trump, What will Trump say? What uh, what red lines will he lay down? Uh, Because certainly the United States will back its closest ally, Israel, and another of its close allies, Saudi Arabia, in this showdown with Iran and and Russia. But the question is, how much does it become a U.S.-Russia a showdown, as it were, this is the potential we 're looking at jimmy is a is a is a world war starting here now i 'm not predicting that, but all of the elements of that are now in place, and again, rockets are being fired they're being they 're coming across borders they 're being fired at capital cities. This is happening as we speak it 's a war it 's just a question of how big and how fast it will grow, and will it end up with israel striking iran 's nuclear program. Uh, this sort of thing, those are remaining
0: questions. Well, David, in light of uh, what we've been talking about from the sideline, let's focus more on Vladimir Putin, that Putin-Trump summit to take place in the middle of July there in Helsinki. I'm sure that a part of the motivation for that meeting from Vladimir Putin is that he has his eye on a Middle East role for the future, for Russia. I mean. This is absolute according to Bible prophecy, but uh, Vladimir Putin ratcheting up his desire to have that role in the Middle East.
3: Yes, and they're expecting that he will demand that the White House and really the West, NATO and everyone, and Trump will have been at a NATO summit just prior to his Helsinki meeting on July 16th, The allies will have a say in what's being said, but he will have to say to Putin: "We will uh, recognize this is what Putin wants. We will recognize your control over these bases in Syria that you have. You have this port there, you have this airport there, air force base, and a naval base. We recognize that. We recognize Assad is staying in power, etc. We will agree to all that. That's what Putin will minimally demand. Now, what else he might add, uh, you know, remains to be seen. What Trump will probably demand, and again, the Pentagon and Secretary of Defense Mattis has made this clear, too, will demand that once Assad gains control of all of his territory, everybody else gets out but Russia. Russia can stay in these bases along the coast. But not (laughs) in the south of Syria. Iranian forces can't be there. Hezbollah has to go back to Lebanon, et cetera. Well, that's probably going to be unacceptable to Iran and Hezbollah, as I pointed out before. So they're pressuring Putin, no doubt, to uh, allow them somehow to stay. Again, the question is what will be the minimum red lines each man will bring to the table? This is an extremely important summit. It's not just a photo op, as some in the Western media are saying. Trump's just looking for another meeting. This is a critical meeting at a critical time coming up, and probably there'll be no military action of any significance uh, beyond what we've been seeing, Jimmy, the last few weeks until after this summit. But again, who knows? Anything could happen, and it would take just a little spark right now to uh, engulf the whole region in flames.
0: David, in light of what we've been talking about, Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority, to meet Vladimir Putin in Moscow. I mean, he's getting all of his ducks in a row, isn't he?
3: He is. He wants to see if, that everybody's on board with whatever's going to happen here, and I, I would assume that it's to make sure that he will take back the Gaza Strip if Hamas is defeated and bring a little stability there. But again, what are Russia's real interests? What are Putin's real interests? We know from biblical prophecy they go beyond a
0: peaceful outcome here. And when we conclude my conversations with my broadcast partners, and I take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today, we'll get more in-depth into the prophetic passages that deal with this report, his Middle East news update from David Dolan, longtime journalist in that region of the world. I mean, I think I could wake David up in the middle of the night. He'd be able to make comments on all the events that are unfolding. David, thank you so much for being available, and thank you for the knowledge you've gleaned over these many years of serving there in the Middle East. We'll talk again next week, buddy.
3: Thank you. I'm honored to do it, Jimmy.
0: We're gonna take a break when we come back. Gonna have a reflection on Prince William's visit to Israel, member of the British royal family, first one in fact in the 70-year history to visit the land of the Jewish nation. We'll have that conversation in a moment with Wiki Madad right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, moving into our second half hour. We need three of them to make 90 minutes. And I've asked you to give us that so we can go around the world and speak with our broadcast partners, giving information, details behind the headlines that we're reading in the newspaper, also hearing about on radio and television. Well, we're going to Shiloh, center part of the State of Israel, a very historic biblical location where we find the former mayor of Shiloh, And that's Winky Madad. Winky is a historian. He is involved in the media, has been. He's also involved in the political arena. We go to him for a number of conversations about different issues. We're going to do that again today. And we'll talk about the man who has been responsible for the archaeological dig, Uh, This is a world-famous archaeologist, happens to be a Christian, which is, in my opinion, very interesting. We'll get that from Winky in a moment. But Winky, last week you concluded our conversation, and you said, hey, Jimmy, we'll have a follow-up on the visit, the first royal family visit to Israel in its 70-year period of time. This last week, Prince William has been in the Jewish state of Israel, and a lot located there in Jerusalem. So let's do the follow-up. Just overall view of the visit by this royal member of the royal family there in England, Prince William. What do you have to say just off the top of your hat And uh, we'll get into the times he met with the different leaders in a moment.
4: Well, Jimmy, obviously from a diplomatic point of view, it's very satisfying that finally a member of the royal family after 71 years, going on 71 years, has dined to visit the country in which the British kingdom was responsible for just over 30 years as the mandator the guarantee of the League of the Nations' decision to reconstitute the Jewish national home. That wasn't too much of a success, and I won't go into the history of that, but I think it's very satisfying, that finally uh, we're back on the map. It wasn't too difficult to do. Everybody looks now back at the uh, one-and-a-half to two days that he was here, and a lot of people saying, what, this couldn't happen 10 or 20 years ago? But, okay, I'll chalk it up, actually, to Mr. Netanyahu's uh, diplomatic efforts, economic efforts, putting on a very good show about how to garner support all around the world, and prove that it's not Israel that is responsible for the conduct, or should I say, the non-conduct of the peace negotiations, and that staying away from Israel is not going to help the matter. Uh, He was there in the Palestinian Authority area. I do not call it, Jimmy, the Palestinian Occupied Territories for reasons we've discussed this many times. He was at the Temple Mount. He was up on the Mount uh, of Olives, where his great-grandmother is buried in a church, and he came to the Western Wall to place a note requesting something from God, and I think it went off very nicely. He even played a little bit of soccer down in Tel Aviv.
0: Yeah, I saw him, pretty good soccer player. Well, let's make sure that everybody understands. This was an official royal family visit. Now, his father, Prince Charles, had attended the funeral for, I believe it was Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Perez, is that correct?
4: That's correct, but in a private capacity, actually.
0: So this was the first official visit there in Israel. Now, you said he met with the Israelis. That was the first day and a half, uh, ultimately, he went to Yad Vashem, and that's always a visit that any foreign leader has to make, isn't it?
4: Well, it sort of establishes for us and sometimes it's mistaken. Uh, This is not the justification of the state. It's the justification of the demand that we had for a state for so many years, and why, especially in the middle of the last century, it was crucial that we have a state. We did not. The British themselves closed the door to immigration from thirty-nine on, but obviously recognizing the fact that Jews are a people, they have a homeland, and they have a right to defend themselves. We could make that case for how the Arabs treated us during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, but people think that's too political, so it's left to the Holocaust era to prove two things. Non-Jews viewed the Jews as a nation to be eradicated, unfortunately, and the only way we could have saved those Jews was by having a Jewish state, which we did not, and so too many of them were lost.
0: Talk to me about the visit with the Palestinian Authority and the leader, President Mahmoud Abbas. I understand that uh, the prince asked Mahmoud Abbas, what about the peace process, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas made a statement, I think it's somewhat of a false statement, that he really, and the Palestinian people, wanted to have peace with Israel.
4: Well, you know, the prince is not a foreign minister or a prime minister or a president. In fact, there's always the protocol of not involving the royal family too much in politics. It's not that they're not too smart, although in previous years and decades that might have been the case, but because of the English system in which the monarchy is simply more of a figurehead type of a thing, very nice to have around, but don't get them in too close to the cooking pot. But President Riven asked him to convey the message that Israel's looking for peace. As you indicated, Abbas sort of fudged the issue in a certain sense. But that's the reality. Uh, We didn't expect that he would bring about the reopening of the peace negotiations. But that coming at this time is a positive development, and I'm willing to give credit to anybody who moved on this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Winky, earlier this week, I did a radio interview with a national radio broadcaster, and the question came up about uh, a politico there in Israel, his name Lapid, and he is urging the United States to allow Israel to take sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Now, Lapid is really part of the opposition, would like to replace the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, if I think I'm correct in knowing who he is. But he's not the only one calling for sovereignty over the Golan Heights. The entire Israeli government's doing that, are they not? That's the policy.
4: That's the practical things that we're doing. Mr. Begin the sixth prime minister, extended Israeli law to the area. And so what Mr. Lapid is asking is simply that that be recognized. And uh, if he succeeds, I'm willing to give him all the credit in the world. Let's not forget, Jimmy, that while he is today an opposition member in the parliament uh, to the Netanyahu government, he was the minister of finance in a previous one. And if anything, I hope our listeners have learned in our many, many conversations now, I think, in the hours, of the many hours that I've been on, is that Israeli politics can be very, very intricate, contradictory, and complex. And so what Lapid is doing now in the States, I understand, is trying to bolster his public image, and he's doing it leaning rightwards and not leaning leftwards, like towards the Labour Party or some of the other uh, left or center parties, because that's where the Israeli population wants to be, right or center-right. Uh, and if he's going to get anywhere in the elections, whenever they come, he has to establish himself as a what we call in Israel the hawkish type of approach on security and national affairs. So I don't mind him running around doing that at the present moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great promotional piece for the Jewish people. In fact, when you talk about the Golden Heights, I must remind every one of our listeners that it was 3,500 years ago when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. Joshua was assigned to divide the land up among the 12 tribes, and he only took half a tribe, and he gave that to Bashan, which is Golan in the Bible. And the word Golan used, I think, four times or six times. The word Bashan, referring to the Golan Heights, used over 60 times. Now, that was 3,500 years ago. God gave the Jewish people that piece of real estate, which is key uh, to the military defense of the Jewish state. Is that the real main reason that uh, they would like to have the sovereignty, just that, or agricultural and the resources, the Sea of Galilee, etc. That plays into it also, doesn't it?
4: Yes, it does, Jimmy, and you've been probably up there many times and maybe some of our listeners too. It has a double security element. Not only does it protect the Sea of Galilee and the lower Jordan Valley and parts of the Galil, the Galilee, but it also looks the other way, right down Assad's throat into Damascus. Almost, even with the naked eye. So, uh, it's very important from a security point of view. Not too many people know, but the later third section of the 19th century, I'm talking about the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, Jews were setting up homes on the Golan Heights. If I'm not mistaken, in the prophets, it's also called Gilad or uh, south of that is, but it's part of the whole area mm-hmm. uh, that, as you correctly say, was historically, geographically, this, the, the land of Israel, the Jewish homeland. And since Syria went to war in 67 and lost the territory, so there are about three or four reasons we just went through now why it doesn't have to get the area back, especially if we look at what's happening now in Syria with everybody killing
0: everybody else. Well, that needs to be in the hands of the Jewish people. Bible says that's going to be the case, but even right now, today, we're talking about the defensive aspect of what's going on in the Golden Heights, and they're right there, the Israeli Defense Force, almost face-to-face with uh, the Iranians, the Russians, the Hezbollah people across the border there in Kanetra. So they're a key, key point for the Jewish people to have under their control. Winky, one of the enjoyments that I've had is to go with you out to the archaeological dig there in Shiloh. And we're planning on our second-timers tour. We take about eight to ten tours every year. Some would like to go again a second time. We're going to bring them out to Shiloh to meet with you to go out to the archaeological dig. But I understand your archaeologist, the main guy, has gone back to... Cady, Texas. And he's finding some great finds, archaeologically, in the artifacts that are assisting in making certain that people understand Shiloh belongs. Even though it's in what is referred to as the West Bank, it's really Judea and Samaria. Shiloh is a great part of that particular location, isn't it?
4: Correct, Jimmy. Uh, We're very happy that the second season of excavation, led by Dr. Scott Stripling, has finished. They've done some remarkable work. I was there several times. You know me. I sort of get my nose stuck in everything (laughs) that's interesting. Yes. I even translated for him uh, several times from English to Hebrew for some of the other people very much interested. So I got some really first-hand knowledge. I sat down with Scott at the table when they were going over the ceramics to date them at different periods of time, which is fascinating. I saw a lot of the finds anybody wants to look it up look up the website dig shiloh or shiloh as it's pronounced in the states one word dig shiloh Uh, and you'll probably come up and he has a a weekly report of the four to five weeks that they were there all sorts of finds jimmy from animal bones to walls to ceramics to artifacts to ornaments jewelry uh, everything that an archaeologist who is trained properly can tell what period of time it came from, what its use was, and what it reflects on the people who were living there. And as Scott said, uh, his people work very hard because they're Christian and because they're very dedicated to the idea that Shiloh is not only an archaeological site, but is also a holy site. And we're very glad that they are there and doing all the fine work that they're doing. And we just can't wait for next year and the year afterwards to discover more about the canaanite wall the israelite walls inside the glacis which is the slope outside the wall and hopefully scott will get around to looking around for something called the tabernacle and that would be tremendous
0: oh that would be absolute always tell our people that go to israel with us you look at israel past touch israel present and visualize israel future and when we go out to shiloh to the archaeological dig going on there We're going to be able to do exactly that. Winky, thank you for the updates on the visit by Prince William, the situation as far as the Golden Heights is concerned, and the dig there at Shido. Appreciate it, my good buddy. We'll talk again real soon.
4: Jimmy, thank you for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners.
0: Very interesting conversation with Winky Madad. A couple of updates. On the Prince William visit to Israel, the Golan Heights, and the efforts by the Israelis to take sovereignty over that special piece of real estate, and of course, the archaeological dig there at Shiloh. We'll stay on top of that archaeological dig. Sounds like an exciting place to be, and we'll do that when we take our second timer's tour to Israel need to come and go along with us. We'll go out to the dig of the ancient tabernacle put there about 3,500 years ago. Well, let's now move from Israel to a very key region of this world as it relates to the prophetic scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. We're talking about the continent of Europe, and in particular, the European Union. The man that we bring to this broadcast table to cover that and give us a EU update, John Rood, lived there in Brussels for a number of years and knows much about the entire situation in the European Union. Uh, There was just a summit, John, that was completed with the European Union member states all participating with their heads of state. That was uh, there in Brussels, I believe. And an interesting comment coming from Angela Merkel. She says that the future of the European Union actually hangs on the solving of the migrant issue. That's what they endeavored to do. Interesting coming from Merkel, this type of a statement. What are your thoughts?
4: Uh, Immediately, this is a
1: huge
5: statement. Of course, Angela Merkel, her coalition was even forecast that it wouldn't be able to survive this weekend because of the migrant issue. So she's actually extrapolating that, saying that really the entire future of the EU hinges on solving the migration issue, which has created enormous pressures throughout the member states. The EU summit is twice per year, it's every six months before the switch of the presidency of the rotating European Union Council which will just uh, be given next to Austria on July 1st. So they wanted to solve this particular uh, migration issue with a statement. But the decisions by the heads of state have to be unanimous. It was expected that the Italian prime minister was going to block any agreement until he was satisfied, and indeed that's what happened. And it was just all night, last night, all night long, was a meeting which uh, finally broke with an agreement just before sunrise. And it's, you know, we have to see how effective this is gonna be, but the gist of it is that they were going to create migration centers in the southern uh, Mediterranean, so therefore people would be more or less uh, processed rather than just showing up. It appears for now that that's been enough to save Merkel and her coalition, but to see if this decision is really going to be effective, as that's yet to be seen. As it most likely, certainly, is a band aid of too little, too late for the extreme pressures. So, moving on from that, which was brought to the forefront, uh, the rest of the summit was dealing with Brexit.
0: Yeah, and I want to ask you about that in just a moment, but this migrant problem not only a problem here in the United States but the European Union is dealing with it and much concern about the islamic radicals who may be a part of the migration coming into Europe and going into different locations to build up what they would like to have a state under sharia the law of the islamic world etc etc similar problems right here in the United States very interesting by the way, speaking of Brexit, the French president says that the time is ready now to prepare for a no-Brexit deal in that type of scenario. Now, what does that mean by Macron on what this talking about related to the Brexit?
5: The entire situation with Brexit, it's completely uncharted waters. I remember the day of the vote just over two years ago. I woke up to the news in Switzerland And it seemed surreal that this was going to happen, but no one really knows how to negotiate an exit. So there have been all types of hardliner stances. And in a sense, the United Kingdom is a bit of a passive player in this, just to see what can be done. Not to a great surprise, with only nine months left, this is supposed to be finalized by March 2019, there's so little clarity on this entire subject. So finally, this is one of the very first times we see a direct statement that there is a possibility of no deal. The interesting aspect of this is that the entire no deal possibility is being portrayed as the absolutely worst scenario. And I'm not so certain that it is absolutely the worst scenario. The EU wants to be very careful establishing a prerequisite uh, precedent deal, because that would actually encourage other countries to kick out. I do believe that we will see an eventual political union, which will eventually be the 10 nations. Uh, Now we have this, the Brexit is just this falling apart it's sort of like a supernova that's ex- expanding and has blown up and now we see what's left at the core of the european union which will eventually be the biblical uh, confederation of prophecy
0: yeah they're in the book of daniel talk to me about the meeting between the pope and french president macron it was pretty intense they're held at the vatican what were they talking about Do you have any idea
5: the meeting between macon and the pope has been sort of a unusual circumstance it was the longest meeting between pope francis and a head of state nearly 1 hour there's an interesting aspect that was added to this he was actually given a honorary recognition called the canon of saint john lateran and actually his predecessors had received the same recognition from the pope but they avoided to, to be there present to receive it, because they wanted to avoid the religious imagery. And France is known to be a secular state just from their charter. This has been a departure from that protocol where Macron has decided to actually receive this in a ceremony. So that's kind of interesting that he's taking a break from his predecessors. The pope as well, they spoke on migration. That is the issue of the day right now.
0: Yeah, very interesting that uh, a European Union leader goes to the Vatican speaking with the Pope. Has taints of what we look at in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, with Rome being the next most important city in Bible prophecy, the headquarters for the European Union. Uh, our revived Roman Empire, let me make it that way, and also the false church. Very interesting developments. Well, the man who stays on top of all that's happening in the European Union to show us how politically everything is being set for the prophetic scenario of God's Word to be fulfilled, John Rood. He does it on a weekly basis We're so happy to have him on board, very knowledgeable of not only Bible prophecy, but the political activities of the European Union. John, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week.
5: My pleasure. It's a busy month of July with all the meetings
0: coming up. Very important report from John Rood covering the European Union for us. They play a key role as they move into what we know as the revived Roman Empire, the EU, the infrastructure for that political operation. Well, right now, Jim Jr. is at the broadcast table. And, Jim, some of our listeners have some prophecy questions. Could you give us that question, and I'll try to answer it from God's word. Patricia H. sends in a question, Dad. She
2: says, I understand what you mean uh, by saying that if the Lord tarries his coming, it is because he would not want anyone to be not saved. But isn't there
3: always
0: going to be people that will be coming to the Lord simply because of evangelism or Christian families? Does your statement mean the rapture or the second coming of Christ? Well, I, I think we have to be talking about the rapture of the church. Uh, The passage of Scripture I believe you're alluding to would be 2 Peter, and that's chapter 3 and verse 9. Uh, Early on in the chapter, the apostle Peter is trying to restore us or stir up our pure minds by way of remembrance of what the prophets and Jesus and uh, what the ancient uh, apostles had to say about the Lord and about his coming. Verse 3, it says, Know this verse, that there shall come up in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lust. Now, I believe that would be people who really know Christ as Lord and Savior, but not walking in the things of the Lord, walking after their own lust, and they're going to deny the rapture of the church. It has to be talking about the rapture because Peter is writing to Christian people here. He's trying to help them understand what the last days will be like. But notice verse 9 now. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What he's talking about here is to the church again because Uh, The church is not looking for the second coming. We're looking for the rapture of the church when we'll be caught up to be with him. And then we get on those white horses, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 14, and we come back to the earth with him. And so he's talking to Christians here. So he's looking at the rapture of the church. Uh, I think we have to ask the question, what manner of people must we be? Because that's what he asked. Look here in verse 11 seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved and verse 10 says the earth is going to be destroyed the heavens will be destroyed they'll burn up what manner of people ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness we need to be living in light of the soon coming of jesus christ that's patricia what the lord is talking about when he said he's not willing i understand often i give an invitation in a church service and I ask people at the end of the service, would you be willing to join with the Apostle John who offered the last prayer in the Bible, even so come Lord Jesus. Now that prayer has not been answered, but would you join with me and pray that prayer? And I ask the people as an invitation to do that, probably on the last service of any prophecy conference I would do. But I also, I bring to their attention, I give them this caveat, Look, I understand many of you might say, hey, wait a minute. I don't want to go. I don't want that rapture to happen right now because I have loved ones who are not saved. Well, I make this statement. I say, look, if you put your loved ones before the opportunity to be with Jesus Christ, you set up your loved one more powerful and more important to you than Jesus Christ. You set up a little God. I do know that I have lost family members. Mm -hmm. I would love to get saved and have them go with us in the rapture. They may not. Uh, Patricia, you're right. Some will get saved, some will not. We can't dictate and control that situation. We can give them a gospel. We can pray that they would trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We can live our lives in front of them so they might want to uh, turn to Jesus Christ as Savior, be provoked to jealousy in one way. That we can do, but we can't make them get saved, but we must be looking with the blessed hope that we have for jesus to call us up to be with him and and that's what uh, we need to be living every moment of every day thank you patricia for sending in that question and dad thank you for taking the time to answer the question on the program today we're going to take a break and when we come back dave james is going to have a conversation with dr DeYoung right here on prophecy today weekend Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Going into the last half hour, I've got David James at my broadcast table ready to have a conversation, a weekly conversation that we have together right here on Prophecy Today. We're going to be focusing on what President Trump's going to be doing very soon now, naming a candidate to be The next Supreme Court Justice to take the place and fill the position of Anthony Kennedy. And we're going to be talking about that with David. Should Christians be concerned about the next Supreme Court justice? Why should we, and what should we be doing? Well, David will explain all of that for us in a moment. Do me a favor, and after the broadcast, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There you'll find on the home page on the left-hand column, if you'll scroll down, My poll question, love to have you answer it. We try to get the heartbeat of our listeners so we know how and where and when we can serve you with the best information, helping you to understand current events in light of biblical prophecy. Now, here's the poll question. Do you believe that all Christians must study the prophetic word of God, a more sure word of prophecy from God? as it's described in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. We need to study the Word of God. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. Check your clock. It's that time of the week for a conversation between me and my broadcast partner, Who deals with issues that confront the body of Christ. We need to have a biblical understanding of all the issues we bring to this broadcast table. It will enhance your walk with Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And David, one of the biggest news stories this week was Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's announcement that he would be stepping down at the end of July.
5: That's absolutely right. In fact, I was listening to Fox News. I have Sirius XM in my my car, and I was on the road, and I was listening to the breaking announcement and called you right away while I was still on the road uh, earlier in the week. Justice Kennedy did announce it was on Wednesday that he's retiring from the Supreme Court, and the Washington Post put it this way, it's a move that will give President Trump a chance to replace a pivotal justice and solidify a more conservative majority on the court that plays a crucial role in American life. And it's really important. In fact, the timing is very important. It's strategic timing. And in fact, President Trump pointed this out, that he was appreciative of Justice Kennedy announcing his retirement at the end of July during President Trump's tenure, because this is going to be before the midterm elections, which means that he will go before the Senate and hopefully be approved by the Senate prior to, to these midterm elections, and we don't know what these midterm elections are going to mean. And of course, one other point about this is that President Trump appointed Neil Gorsuch, who was a constitutional conservative, back in April of last year. And then one other thing that relates to this is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg who is 85, it's very, very likely that she will need to step down prior to the end of President Trump's term. So the fact that a president might have the opportunity to appoint three Supreme Court justices is really an amazing thing.
0: Yeah, that brings me then to the question. And before we get into details of the story, take a moment, if you will, David, and give our listeners a sense of why this is, you've already started it, but in additional information, if you will, why this is an important issue for Christians, for the body of Christ.
5: Well, I think it's very important to understand that there's a difference in philosophy between Supreme Court justices, uh, whether they be on the right or they be on the left. On the left, they tend to rule, according to the idea that the constitution is a living document, and so therefore is subject to new interpretation, depending on how things move in society. So it's always evolving. Whereas on the conservative side, they tend to be originalists, meaning that they go back to the original meaning and intent of the original framers of the Constitution who actually were quite brilliant men, and it's amazing that we have a country that we have that is different than any other country that has ever existed in the history of the world because of going back to this foundational document. In fact, we might even be able to relate the difference as this. You and I hold to what's called a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic when it comes to the Bible, so what we try to do is we try to discover the original intent and meaning of the uh, authors who wrote the scriptures, whereas liberal theologians tend to see the Bible as a living document, and so their interpretation evolves over time. And I think we're in a much better shape to go back to the original document and what they meant, because even though it's not explicitly a Christian document, the framers were functioning according to a Judeo-Christian ethic, and it is favorable to Christianity, whereas as society evolves, it is becoming more hostile to Christianity. So I think these appointments are very important.
0: You know, and I've always thought that the Bible was a perfect pattern Or how the founders of our nation put together the Constitution. David, take a moment, if you will, now, give us some background information on Justice Kennedy, and uh, what can you tell us about him?
5: Well, he was born in 1936. He was appointed in 1975 by President Gerald Ford to the United States Courts of the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. And then in 1987, he was appointed by President Reagan and confirmed in February of 1988 by the U.S. Senate. He became the most senior associate justice of the court following the death of Antonin Scalia a couple of years ago.
0: You know, the Supreme Court has been called by some the Kennedy Court because he has consistently been identified as the swing vote on the court. Explain that. Yes, well, it's
5: interesting the Supreme Court is generally known by the name of its chief justice. In this case, it would be Justice Roberts. But because Kennedy has chosen to swing one way or the other, sometimes he would give the deciding opinion in many, many decisions on the court were 5-4 split decisions split between the four conservatives and the four more liberal justices on the court. So he wrote majority opinions in various things, for example, involving Planned Parenthood. He also uh, wrote the majority opinion for uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which is what made same-sex marriage legal in the United States. He's been very much supportive of uh, gay rights cases beyond just the Obergefell versus Hodges case. So he has been very instrumental in most of the decisions that have happened over the last several years. Now, it is true that it's been said that in about 80 percent of the cases, he did swing toward the conservative side. And again, you would expect that that might be the case, having been appointed by Reagan. But in certain very key decisions again uh, concerning planned parenthood and same-sex marriages he has swung toward the liberal side which has been actually quite devastating what i would i would say quite devastating for the moral climate in the legal realm here in the united states
0: and this constitution that we're discussing says that the president at the time of a vacancy must be the one who nominates someone to fill that particular vacancy. So President Trump has already said that he has a list of about 25 possible candidates to fill Justice Kennedy's vacancy. Who do you think, David, might be on this short list?
5: Well, I've done quite a bit of research into this. There are several names that come up. One of them that I heard yesterday, for example, Rand Paul, was very much in favor of uh, Senator Mike Lee. And uh, he has been described as smart with an unquestionable commitment to the Constitution. So he would be an originalist, and some say that he could be at the very top of that list. And he has an unquestionable commitment to interpreting the Constitution as it was understood when it was written and it was ratified. I was doing some other research, and uh, the New York Times put uh, forth several names that they believe are on this short list. One would be uh, a man named Thomas Hardiman, who is on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and actually he had been considered by President Trump for the seat that was ultimately filled by uh, Neil Gorsuch. A couple of other names, William Pryor, he's also on the United States Courts of Appeal, but he's on the 11th Circuit. He was also considered a finalist for last year's vacant seat that Gorsuch filled. In fact, this man, William Pryor, said that the 1973 Supreme Court decision that established a constitutional right to have an abortion was the worst abomination of a constitutional law in our history. So when we think about who is going to be appointed next, and especially if we get not only this filled vacancy with a constitutional conservative, but also in the potential vacancy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there could be the possibility that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. One other name I'll just mention quickly, Brett Kavanaugh. He's in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and he too was considered when President Trump filled that vacancy with Justice Gorsuch. So there are many actually very good candidates that President Trump has on his list.
0: Interestingly, I've looked at that same list that you were looking at, David, and I noticed that not only was Senator Mike Lee mentioned as one of the 25 possible candidates, but his brother. And I heard an interview with Mike Lee the other day. He said, my brother's a genius. I would really look at my brother to fill that vacancy. Very interesting there. Well, we know that our country was set up by the forefathers as a representative republic. Everybody needs to understand that. Not a democracy but as a representative republic with three main branches of government so that there would be a balance of power. So just how much power does the Supreme Court have as compared to the other branches of government, David?
5: Well, even though there should be an equal balance of power, the Supreme Court does tend to be sort of like the referee in a in a basketball game, and they have the final say. And I would say beyond that, their power is amplified when you do have more liberal judges who are functioning according to their own ideology. And what happens is the court can actually function legislatively and uh, we know that they shouldn't be legislating from the bench they should be deciding on the constitutionality of what the executive branch does which is the president and what congress does which is the legislative branch so they actually have i would say more power in in many cases than the other two branches of government
0: president trump's legacy david not only involves the appointment of a Supreme Court judge, but also the federal judges that he's appointed as well
5: that's true. Time magazine reported in December of last year that he had appointed already in that first year four times as many federal appeals judges as Obama had done in his first year. And so uh, it's a very important role that the president has, and it will shape the, the direction of this country in many ways for decades to
0: come. David, as we wrap it up, how should believers be praying concerning this issue?
5: Well, as we've discussed many times, you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy that we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. And so we need to pray for God's will to be done, and we need to pray for the president and those who will be deciding on the next Supreme Court justice in the Senate as they consider who to approve. We need to pray for wisdom for them that we may live as Christians in a way that is consistent with biblical principles.
0: A great exhortation, not only from David, but originally from the Apostle Paul, First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. David, thank you for doing research on this, a very important issue confronting our president and, of course, the United States Senate, who will approve, who will be the next Supreme Court justice. We'll have a conversation, I don't know exactly like this, but one that's key for Christians to understand the biblical principles behind. We'll do that next week, David. Thank you so much.
5: Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be with you again.
0: We're going to take a break, and when we come back after that break, I'm going to open up my Bible. I'm going to take a look at the book in light of all the conversations that we've had today right here on Prophecy
2: Today.
5: I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies and church services and the courses for weekend conferences of 6-10 to hours. For more information you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you.
0: It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. What a joy it is for me each week to be able to talk to our broadcast partners around the world, get their insight and the details behind the headlines we're reading or hearing, Thus, then, we can have a better understanding from God's word how close we may be to the plan that God has for everything in the future. Now, we do this so that we can get the truth behind the details, really, of what the news is all talking about. And then I take a look at the book, as I'm doing right now, to confirm where we are in God's timeline for the future. By the way, if you missed any of the reports from our broadcast partners, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you'll be able to listen to all of these conversations. And once you've done that, you recognize how important they are Call a friend. Get a hold of your friend somehow. Tell them how they can listen to these reports. They will be key for their understanding of Bible prophecy. Thank you so very much for doing that. Now let's take a prophetic perspective on the news this week. In Europe, Ken Timmerman told us about the Trump Putin summit that's going to take place in Helsinki, Finland. It's coming up the middle of July. It's going to be a key conversation between these two world leaders. President Trump has said at least we need to be talking with those who may be in opposition to us in this world and what is going on. Now, ultimately, we understand the prophetic scenario as it relates to Russia and some of the issues they'll be discussing in that summit for example russia is a key component of what's going on the civil war a eight year civil war there in syria actually vladimir putin and the russians have been propping up president assad of syria This is key for his existence in the Middle East. But also, Iran has moved into Syria with the purpose of trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Even their reports today talking about they would like to send a missile at Dimona, which is the nuclear reactor and may well be the arsenal for the nuclear weapons of mass destruction that Israel has. Crimea is a location that was actually, in the beginning, a part of the Roman Empire, and thus then it was a part of the European Union, which will ultimately become the revived Roman Empire. All of these places are key to what Russia is going to be involved in in the last days, thus this meeting between Trump and Putin, key in our world today. David Dolan and I We had a time to be able to talk, and David gave us his Middle East news update. Israel is getting ready to protect its nuclear reactors and the arsenal for the nuclear weapons of mass destruction. That was his report. He gave us further evidence that uh, this is a key component for the preservation of the state of Israel. Well, that's not 100% correct. The Israeli Defense Force thinks that if they have a nuclear arsenal and their nuclear reactors are protected, everything will be okay. The Bible tells us, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, verse 18, through chapter 39, verse 6, that it won't be nuclear weapons that protect the Jewish state of Israel. Instead, it will be God who rains hellfire and brimstone out of the heavenlies to destroy these attacking nations, an alignment headed up by Russia, made up of the Islamic states of the Middle East. As they go into and try to destroy Israel, God intercedes to protect his people because he ultimately has a plan, an eternal plan, as far as the Jewish state of Israel is concerned. Wikimedia always comes with great reports. We got an update on the Prince William visit to Israel, also the dig the dig looking for the tabernacle there in Shiloh, where Winky lives, and that was a great report. But I have to say, our discussion about the Golden Heights and the fact that the Golden Heights is key in order to protect the Jewish state of Israel that overlooks the Hula Valley, very productive agricultural valley, and also the main water source for the state of Israel, the Sea of Galilee. But when you think about the Golan Heights, you have to think about Syria. President Bashar Assad said he's going to take the Golan Heights back. His daddy lost it, Hafez al-Assad, in the Six-Day War in 1967. And so he wants it back on behalf of the family name. Well, the Golan Heights, 3,500 years ago, was actually given to the half-tribe of Manasseh. That's Joshua chapter 14, as Joshua, who was the leader of the Israelites at that time, divided up the land and gave that to the half-tribe of Manasseh. A 3,500-year history of the Golan Heights belonging to the Jewish people. By the way, the word Golan is used some four times in the Bible itself. That helps us to understand better what God's plan was for it. John Rood talked to us about Tayyip Erdogan's victory there in Turkey, what that means to the European Union. The fact is that Tayyip Erdogan is now leaning towards Russia, and coming into that coalition, which is foretold in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. Now, I'd agree with John, that is the case. That stage is being set. A revival of the Ottoman Empire will help Taya Erdogan to play a key role in that battle against Israel. A great question coming from one of our listeners. And by the way, send those questions in, Jim will put them together and ask me on the broadcast in the future. And then, of course, we concluded with David James talking about another Supreme Court justice. Anthony Kennedy has just resigned. He's retiring, basically. They have to fill that position, Donald Trump, because he's the president, and that's constitutional. He's the one who will name the replacement, and then the United States Senate to confirm that replacement. Well, we need to know about this because it's human government that sets the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. As David exhorted us using the Word of God in exhortation from the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we should be praying for those that are in higher authority and then realize that those in higher authority will be the ones who continually make decisions to set up the end-time scenario from God's Word. And that's found in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17. But let me then quickly remind you, before all of these prophecies we've been talking about are fulfilled, the next one, which will be fulfilled, is the rapture of the church. That rapture, actually, could happen at any moment. Having made that statement, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking
2: up.